but I will say that there's a really important vignette in in the preface. It's important to me anyway because it you know there's a personal sort of discussion of uh, an encounter that I had with a senior academic when I was in grad school mm. and and how that affected me personally and then how I watched it affect my own graduate students as I came back to the same conference and we encountered the same person and and really it was one of my graduate students my former graduate student who um, called out that behavior and and made us all accountable for it because it had been an intergenerational thing that kept happening until somebody was finally willing to say, yeah, no, this is not okay. Welcome to Leaning In and Speaking Out, a Research Connection podcast. This is a podcast from Brandon University's Centre for Aboriginal and Rural Education Studies, or BU Cares. Every episode, we connect with a researcher and a community member around a topic of interest. We want to model how research connects with the broader community and highlight the knowledge that both researchers and community members bring to the table. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Leaning In and Speaking Out podcast. I'm Michelle Lamb, one of the hosts of the podcast, and I'm here with Jackie Kirk. Jackie, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Jackie Kirk, and I am from the Department of Leadership and Educational Administration, and Happy to be here today. Yeah. So today we're talking with Stacey Hannum and Chris Schneider. They've just written a book. Their book is Defining Sexual Misconduct and is talking about Me Too and some of the power imbalances around that topic. And I'd like each of you to introduce yourselves. So Stacey, would you like to go first? Sure. Thanks, Michelle. Uh, I am a professor in the criminology department at Wilfrid Laurier University in Ontario. And I've been a prof there since uh, about 2009. And my area of interest and expertise is on um, sexual violence and sex work and uh, the effects of law and policy on marginalized people. Chris? And I am Chris Schneider. I am a professor here at Brandon University in the Department of Sociology. And my research area is on media and the ways in which media influence things, social interaction. So in that way, this book is very much a, a product of both of our areas of expertise, and neither one of us could have written this book as an individual. So Stacy brings her background and expertise in sexual violence, I bring my background and expertise in media, and uh, we started having conversations when Me Too happened and Harvey Weinstein, the allegations, and, and then we wrote a book. So I'd like to begin just by asking about some of the understandings around sexual misconduct. And I know your book talks about how those have changed over time. So I thought that might give us a good grounding as we enter into the conversation. So would someone like to answer that question, just the older understandings of what that is and how that's changed? Sure. So when we started um, having conversations about the, the sort of language of sexual misconduct, we learned that it is a, a relatively recent term. And it emerges as a sort of a parallel term from sexual harassment, which is named and identified by feminists in the 1970s, which of course is not to suggest that sexual harassment wasn't happening before. It absolutely was, but it becomes recognized. And we can think of it as the first Me Too moment where women started recognizing uh, behaviors in the workplace that were problematic that conducive to sexual harassment. And what we find is that sexual harassment very quickly becomes codified into workplace policy and into the law. And the irony there, and we, we sort of discussed this in our book, is less and less sort of the everyday woman, commoner woman uh, identified with 
sexual harassment because all that happens in the workplace and it didn't doesn't happen when I'm in line say at, at Tim Hortons and around that time sexual misconduct starts we find developing in the 1980s we looked at um, media reports over the span of about four decades and early discussions of sexual misconduct we were both really surprised to find that it was used as an umbrella term in reference to any sort of sexual encounter that was not between a married man and a married woman. So same-sex relationships that are fully consensual with, with consenting adults, sexual misconduct. Um, men, petitions primarily in the data, were having affairs on their wives, even though the affairs were consensual between two consenting adults, sexual misconduct. Um, sex with children, sexual misconduct. Sex between children, sexual misconduct. So it sort of a catch-all phrase for any sort of sexual activity. And in the late 80s, early 1990s, this starts to shift a bit when you have the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas hearings in relation to sexual harassment and sexual misconduct starts to then become more codified into discussions of political scandals, most notably the Clinton and Lewinsky political scandal that many people are familiar with. And it when, we, when it starts getting codified into the scandals, some of the other ways in which it was discussed, say between consensual um, same-sex relationships between you know same-sex adults, these become recognized as, well, they're not sexual misconduct. These are people in relationships. And that starts to drop off there. So it, it sort of shifts. And the one of the key arguments in our book is we discuss the ways in which uh, the language of sexual misconduct, because it can include a variety of behaviors that are at one extreme, um, criminal sexual assault, at the other extreme, consensual sexual relations between adults. And I know probably we're thinking like, mm, what do you mean? Take an example where you have a workplace and you have two people of equal status, uh, equal rank, equal pay, all things equal. If employer restrictions exist that do not allow sexual relationships between employees and they engage in, in sexual relationship, that could be discussed as sexual misconduct. So um, the argument we make essentially is that sexual harassment becomes sort of limited and sexual misconduct rather becomes expansive and allows more and more people, mostly women, to identify with problematic uh, behaviors, harmful sexual behaviors that are not necessarily consistent with uh, crimes or sexual harassment. And this, we suggest, paves the or paves the way or lays the groundwork or the foundation for Me Too and some later sort of movements around discussions of sexual crime. So maybe I'll turn to you and um, for the next question, how does social media influence the topic? And I think Me Too, we see, you know, significant influence of social media. And then more recently, like, um, I just found that my feeds were inundated with stuff about Dev versus Herd this summer. And um, I was surprised with even the number of viewers and uh, the number of places that I could watch and the number of offshoots from that trial and the way that the dialogue on social media changed as a result. Yeah. So, so the influence of social media has been both positive and negative, I think. Um, 
primarily social media opens up a platform that in many ways we has been called more democratic. It's you know available to anyone with an internet connection, anyone with a Facebook profile, a Twitter profile can go out there, they can tell their story. And this is a, a definite shift from in the past when you know people's stories about sexual violence get first usually told to police and, and they're sort of filtered through the lens of the criminal processing system and the way that it wants to, to tell those stories. Um, and in, in this sense, you know, people, only people who were very famous, who were well-known, would have their stories make their way finally into media. Now what we have is the situation where anybody can tell their story. They can tell it in the way that they want to tell it. And this opens up both the possibility of sort of reclaiming narratives of, of violence and, and reclaiming people, you know, your own experience, but also then subjects you to potentially all kinds of blowback from you know, especially if you're accusing uh, someone who is well-known and popular and loved like Johnny Depp was, um, you know, those accusations are met with a defense that may or may not be rational. And, and we see increasingly lots of women who are coming forward in these situations are facing uh, death threats, they're facing online harassment, they're facing all kinds of really negative outcomes from from telling their story so it it has both positive and mm -hmm. negative effects i think mm -hmm. um but it has definitely opened up a space for a conversation that wasn't happening before i remember at the beginning is wasn't at the beginning of me too but when me too finally sort of hit my world i remember on facebook when the women on my facebook feed were just typing me too into their right and i remember the first when I first started noticing that coming up in my feed and having to go and figure out what that was all about. And then, you know, following that, then feeling so heavy every time I saw somebody who was that statement out. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and But the power, right, is sort of what you were talking about, the power of individual people to be able to get into the discussion because often we're so removed from important discussions in our society. And some of the influence in terms of the changes like you know, Western University, for example, if you want to discuss that space. Yeah, in Fosh Week at Western, a couple of, just this past fall um, of 2021, there were all kinds of allegations coming out on social media that said there, that young women had been victims of, of drugging and, and abuse during Frosh Week. And none of those young women went to the police, but there was so much of an outcry on social media and so much response that the London police actually did open up an investigation into those allegations, which again is something that we have not previously seen, even in the Giangomeshi case that many people are familiar with. Um, when the allegations against Giangomeshi first came out in the Toronto Star, Bill Blair, who was chief of police at the time, was asked, are you going to investigate these allegations? And he said, we don't have a victim those women didn't come to us. And so they did not open an investigation in Toronto police until the women actually went you know, down to the station, made their statements. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing a shift in the way that allegations in social media are being uh, taken up and considered and perhaps given a bit more legitimacy by police and by other systems. And this is one of the, the very positive outcomes of the Me Too movement in terms of having uh, more legitimacy toward uh, accusations where in the past they probably would have otherwise been sort of dismissed or swept into the rug. Is that something that's changing in a positive direction now that as survivors come forward, I still hear that a lot of these cases don't end in a positive way for survivors, even after they've been through the court case or after they, 
But is that changing because of this or is this still? I think the Me Too movement opened up a space to have really serious conversations about what many feminist researchers and activists have been saying now for decades that, you know, the criminal processing system, police, courts don't deal really well with survivors. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that there's more of a push to to change that. But we we still have work to do because it has to move from, I think Me Too has been a movement of awareness and now it needs to move into a movement of action. And the way to do that is to have those conversations with policymakers, with the people who are um, in charge of setting the standards for police and, and for the mm -hmm. courts to have concrete changes made at that level. Mm -hmm. And this, I think, is an interesting part when there's been a lot of press about the the fifth year anniversary of hashtag Me Too. And to, to be clear, it was a movement started by Toronto Burke, an African-American activist in the States in 2006. So uh, the hashtag sort of sparked these conversations. And the, the a lot of coverage about the, the fifth year anniversary is, I think, the prime moment for these very discussions about how do we be more proactive? How do we develop new policies? Because the, the Me Too movement took sort of the world by storm. Um, and a lot of it was focusing on the victimization of people, um, discussing survivor stories, but then what about the accountability bit? What about the policy implications bit? Mm -hmm. And I think now is the prime moment to really have many of those conversations uh, when we're talking about, well, it's the fifth year anniversary, sure. sure. Like, what, what can we do now? Actually, just talking before we came on here, we were just talking about the need for policy to be. <laughs> you say it better than me, so you you take over. Well, I I'm an admin, and so she was asking, you know, how does a person like me enjoy policy? And I was saying, well, in my opinion, policy has to be dynamic. Like policy mm -hmm. should describe um, our current practices, and it should shift as people shift practices and practice always shifts. And so we have to keep working in organizations to keep policy up to speed. And that when policy isn't working for people within the organization, that it's a signal that policy needs to change rather than we need to see it as something hard. And, and um, policy should be aspirational. We should be looking beyond, you, you mm -hmm. know, what, what are the best practices now to what are the best practices that we want to see to change right. the way right. that things are happening. Yeah. 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 So given that and the need for the policy changes and so on, what do educators need to know about this topic? So bringing it back into the classroom or into the school, if you could give your thoughts on that topic, what would you say? I spent a bit of time thinking about this mm -hmm. question and, um, you know, at the level, I mean, I, I want to talk about educators right through from elementary school through mm -hmm. secondary and, and post-secondary because at the elementary school level, you know, we are starting to see more conversations about consent and, and about children's bodily autonomy and the need to teach them at a very young age, you know, the importance of having their own boundaries and being able to say no, but also respecting other people's boundaries and, and taking no for an answer when, when no is given. And so that's a conversation I think that's happening among educators and, and it's being done in sex ed curriculum. But I think educators also need to be having those conversations with parents because there's so much that happens at the level of the family that in, in many cases sends, I think really unintentionally and, and innocently, but but with bad consequences, um, messages about children's bodily autonomy that that are really mixed. So those 
you know, well-meaning aunts and grandmas who say, come here and give me a kiss. You know, oh, what, what do you mean you don't want to give me a kiss? But that that's a conversation about consent. Mm-hmm. And, and the fact that we don't recognize that for children, I think, you know, it follows mm-hmm. them through. And again, at the secondary level, you know, we're talking about consent and doing a much better job of that. But I don't, and we're really good at talking about the negative side of, of sex and the things that people shouldn't be doing. But I don't know that we've empowered our young people to be talking about the positive side of the conversations. Because in order to be able to say no, you also need to be able to articulate where your own boundaries are, what it is that you want out of a consensual sexual interaction, let alone shutting down something that's non-consensual and sort of having those conversations all along the spectrum. And at the post-secondary level, I mean, there's just so much work to be done in terms of our policies, I think, and um, really engaging the students, engaging the faculty and staff in conversations about what do we want the culture of the institution to look like and, and how do we get there? How do we create a policy that not only is preventative and sets the culture that we want to have so that we prevent people from um, from having these these unwanted interactions but then also when those things do happen because they will making sure that our policy really clearly outlines a path to accountability and, and having space to really engage in conversations about what do survivors need to feel like justice has been done whatever that is for them these are difficult conversations to have. And I think we see time and time again that institutions often will avoid these conversations because you know, people don't want to talk about it. And invariably, there will be some kind of sexual assault or sexual misconduct that happens in an institution. And when when there's good policy in place and, and these things have been discussed in advance, there's the accountability mechanism, right? And saying, well, this happened these are the policies and the things that we're going to do in terms of, of dealing with this situation, uh, which should also include the things that survivors need. It should include a type of accountability for the perpetrators. And we find that these things are typically sort of absent in many of the situations. Mm-hmm. And as you know, we've both said in our conversations, it's these things develop into scandals. So we discuss scandals in, in the book, in the first chapter. And unfortunately, sexual misconduct, sexual assault, these things, sexual harassment, they're gonna happen in, in any institutional setting. Uh, it, they cannot be avoided. The scandal becomes when the institution fails to deal with it or even acknowledge it. Uh, oh, it's just to bury their head in the sand and, and not talk about it. Then the scandal develops mm-hmm. and then they don't wanna talk about it even more because now we have a scandal and mm-hmm. then it just gets totally off the rails um, the perpetrators aren't held accountable. The, the survivors are not felt like they're heard. So taking the issue head on when it happens, saying this happened, these things are going to happen. The policies in place, we've had these proactive discussions. This is how it's going to be, be handled. And so I think one of the things for educators as, a, as an outcome of our book is to, I think, um, hopefully inspire people to have these difficult conversations up front uh, rather than in sort of the back end following when something like this happens. Mm-hmm. And again, to be clear, we, we don't want, nobody wants these things. They're gonna happen and we need to make sure that we have some sort of mechanism to deal with it uh, appropriately and properly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for educators, particularly at the post-secondary level to, to think about power dynamics. Um, mm-hmm. 
And I mean, they're very, very clear cut rules and laws about, you know, the, the elementary and secondary school, you know, sex with children is wrong. Um, and illegal. And illegal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the post-secondary level where the students are adults, I think that there's more space there where we get into these conversations about mm-hmm. consent mm-hmm. and about relationships that develop, but thinking through the importance of understanding your own positionality in terms of power and your relationship to students. And I think, you know, universities again and colleges haven't done a very good job of setting policy around professor-student relationships um, and, and really wanting to understand, you know, yes, everybody's an adult, but but power complicates all of these things. And I don't think that there's actually a space where people can freely and fully give it consent when there's a power dynamic in, in that relationship. We discussed that too in the book that, uh, I mean, one of the things we hope educators take out of this is that, you know, me happen, it, uh, it's been five years and these things keep happening. And, you know, the, the, the conversations that Stacey and are having is like, have these people been living under a rock? How mm-hmm. how do they not know at this point about mm-hmm. the, the power relationships, the power dynamic? And it's it's so easy, I think, for people to ignore it and excuse their actions in those situations. And, you know, secondary education system, as Stacey was saying, it, it's uh, the fact that everybody are adults and, you know, the, the sort of baseline assumption is that, well, Adults are free to be able to consent when in whatever behaviors they want, but that totally skirts the the power dynamic there. Mm-hmm. And because it's an institution and there are power relations at play, we need to have these conversations that, I mean, we need to ask the question, can people, can students ever really consent into a sexual relationship with a faculty member? Students, undergraduate students, and, you know, these are difficult conversations to have. And, uh, you know, we have several colleagues we know uh, who married their graduate students, have children with their graduate students. I mean, it, it, should should those things be allowed? I'm not saying one way or other, but we should be having the conversations uh, about these very things, I think. And educate me if this is incorrect, but for most policies that tend to focus on the big things that happen at the very end of the process, when there are small things like comments that are offhand or the things that often go unreported, are is it possible to address those things through policy or are there other ways that, because people don't report them, are there other ways that they can be addressed at that kind of ground level, like those inappropriate small things that aren't small because they add up and they affect students or they affect people that are experiencing them? Yeah, I I think they can be addressed. Mm -hmm. I think it takes a certain level of courage because what you're really referring to, I think, is a kind of bystander intervention or or the ability for a person who's been on the receiving end of of offensive comments or, or things that were inappropriate to be able to articulate in a way that is clear and direct to the person who's done those things what effect that had on them. Mm-hmm. And to be able to say, you know, actually, this isn't okay, and I and I would like you to think about the things you're saying, and to stop saying these kinds of things, or to stop doing these things, and and that takes a lot of bravery. Mm-hmm. And I think in order to have a space where that's okay and where that can happen, you've got to have the policy and the administrative will to back up 
that those kinds of conversations and so that if things do go sideways you don't end up with a reciprocal HR complaint or something <laughs> yeah. about a toxic workplace right um I think it's sort of incumbent on the people involved to to be able to talk to their colleagues and to to intervene you know mm -hmm. so if you, if you see something inappropriate with a student you you have to be able to take a person aside and to say you know I think with with respect but also you know really directly say that's it's not okay and we have to do something about that behavior yeah I wonder if that's maybe part of the role of education also like teaching those skills how to intervene absolutely you know, how to stand up communication skills yeah. are so yeah. key all along you yeah. know from the prevention right up to the response so mm -hmm. it's all it all hinges on how well people are able yeah. to communicate you know this is another thing about the book I think that educators can benefit from mm -hmm. in, in our discussion of you know the development and expansion of the the idea of sexual misconduct in that, you know, when you, when Stacy mentions HR complaints and a lot of these things typically have revolved around sexual harassment or inappropriate conducts or statements that could be consistent with sexual harassment, but sexual misconduct includes things that are inappropriate, but are not recognized as sexual harassment or recognized as criminal. One of the positive developments of, of Me Too is it allowed people, again, mostly women to come forward and discuss sexual harms that were not recognized as criminal harassment, but harmful. Mm -hmm. And it redirects some of our attention to the idea that, you know, when, when men will say it was just a joke, we'll relax, whatever. Well, no, it wasn't a joke, like it was harmful. Mm -hmm. And to recognize the harm and have those conversations. Mm -hmm. And I think those conversations have become increasingly, I mean, they're paramount for any institution, especially education institutions to, you know, just because something's not a crime or harassment doesn't mean that it's not harmful, doesn't mean that it's not wrong. And to recognize that and have those discussions, you know, all the way up from, you know, K through 12 and post-secondary is something that's very important that can influence policy and, and something that I think the Me Too movement, especially in the hashtag version of it, has, has been very influential in sort of driving some of these conversations and some of this change. I just think that we should end with having you give another plug for the book and a you know sort of an overview again. maybe about who <laughs> who should read it. Um, well, uh, you know the book we we wrote it for an interested and educated public, and what we'd say to that we had these conversations in advance when we were writing it because that was the goal was not to write it for you know, our three academic friends who are going to read it. <laughs> I mean, what's the point of, of writing if you're going to do that? So yeah. we, we wrote it with that in mind. With all that said, uh, skip the introduction. So the, the introduction lays out the, the nuts and bolts and the theory and the method of the book, because mm -hmm. as academics, you sort of have to do that when you're making a case. Mm -hmm. And Stacey and I have said we sort of regret putting that in the intro, and it should have mm -hmm. been an appendix it or an appendix yes. mm -hmm. but if you're really interested in, in feminist theory and, and <laughs> you should it's all there yeah so but if, if you're not and you don't want to get you know bogged down by the nuts and bolts skip right into the meat and potatoes of the book and, and start there don't judge a book by the intro yeah there you go. Don't, i love it don't judge a book by the intro yes exactly we'll link the book below so people can find it if they're interested You've been listening to Leaning In and Speaking Out, the Research Connection podcast. 
For more episodes or to learn more about the BU Cares Research Centre, please visit our website at brandonu.ca forward slash BU cares, or you can come find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube.